0: Okay, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. We are a few messages short of finishing Romans. And then we'll get into some really important stuff. Romans 8.33. And let's take a couple of moments of silent preparation. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather in this place with people who know the love of Christ that passes knowledge and with like-minded saints. And We're so grateful for the fellowship of each one. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to gaze into that perfect law of liberty, which is a fulfilled Torah of freedom. And when we stare into that perfect law that perfect torah we see our freedom in christ and we know where our freedom came from we pray that you'll enlighten our eyes father so that we can say it is god's doing and it is marvelous in our enlightened eyes we ask it in his name amen romans 8:33 says who will bring an effective charge or accusation It's the future of the verb enkalo, enkaleo, and it has a courtroom drama sense to it. Who will bring an effective charge, a successful charge against God's elect? Then, one translation, the one I chose, and the one I think is correct, it asks another question. God, the one who justifies The absurdity of that is revealed in the rhetorical answer, which has to be, of course not. Who will bring an effective charge against God's elect? God, the one who justifies? Of course not. 34a, we only want to take the first half of it tonight. Who is the one who will condemn? And then the question, Christ, the one who died? And of course not. Beyond that, who was raised up and makes intercession for us is going to require another message altogether. He was raised up because of our justification or for our justification according to Romans 4.25. So how can anyone be successful to condemn when it's Christ who died and in his death brought about our justification? The title... God, the one who justifies. It's a good name for God. That title, God, the one who justifies, expresses the universal primeity of God, the universal primeity of God, which we have studied now at least seven times, leading up to Romans 8.32 and then through 8.32 to this place. He justifies the ungodly, says Romans 4.5, and he does so... Justly, says Romans 3.26. He justifies the ungodly, and he does so justly. So if anyone wants to take on your gospel of the grace of God and of the universal salvation that is in Christ Jesus and object on the basis of justice or God's justice by saying, well, God is just too, he may be loved, but he just, just too then say, well, he justly justifies the ungodly. So we should take this seriously. This is the gospel. Seriously. We should take this seriously. What we should take seriously is God. I know that sounds obvious, but not too many people take him seriously, including people in what is known as Christianity. What is serious is God who justifies. Christ, the one who died, should be taken seriously. Bonhoeffer wrote this in Ethics, and it really grabbed me a few months ago, and I look at it every once in a while just to become more and more familiar with it in the right way he said neither the idea of a pure Christianity as such nor the idea of a human being as such is serious but only God's reality and human reality as they have become one in Jesus Christ what is serious is not some kind of Christianity but Jesus Christ himself. That's the conclusion that Bonhoeffer came to. And I found myself running right with him in these last days of my life. Exactly. Let's expand on that a little. What is serious is the reality capital R of God who justifies. So what is not serious at all and shouldn't be taken seriously is someone who would lay a charge against those whom God justifies. That's the elect to do so is to lay a charge against the justifier who is God, who is just and the justifier of the ungodly. And he is the justifier of Jesus Christ who died as the ungodly and rose for our justification. What is serious and therefore to be taken seriously in this life is Jesus Christ who died. So what is not serious nor should be taken serious at all is someone who could, would condemn those who died with him, and thus were justified with him, the elect one. Elsewhere, Paul writes, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. What he meant by that is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision are to be taken seriously at all. People took it seriously, and so they got into their polarized camps and got into a deadlock of ressentiment toward one another and started their little group biases. So what Paul really meant there is that you shouldn't take either circumcision or uncircumcision seriously. Then he says, what is really something? Something you should take seriously is the new creation. What he means is the new creation is something to be taken seriously. The new creation is everything summed up in the reality that is in Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we don't just put off an old self and put on any old new self. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our new self. So it is no longer I who live, but Christ. You see. So you can say you turned over a new leaf and you're a new self, but I wouldn't take that seriously. What I take seriously is putting off the self in the old Adam and putting on the new man Which is Jesus Christ. Anything that calls itself Christianity, when it's just a philosophy or a set of beliefs or sacraments or practices, should not be taken seriously. What should be taken seriously is the reality, capital R, That is Jesus Christ. He is the reality that is uncreated God. And he is the reality of all created things in one person. Again, Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything. Now, when you say something is nothing or something, neither that or that is anything, you mean you don't take it seriously. One of the biggest problems that people have is they take themselves seriously. But there is a sense where we should because God takes us seriously. He takes you seriously because he loves you. So when Paul says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything, he means not just the ritual or the undoing of the ritual or the non-doing of the ritual of circumcision, but the life and the livingness connoted by those things, an identification with either of those things shouldn't be taken seriously. They are nothing. They are not to be taken seriously. When anyone thinks he's something, takes himself too seriously. When he's really nothing, he deceives himself. Paul said that in the same letter. But he said, well, you know what's really something? And therefore something to be taken seriously is faith Working by love. Galatians 5.6. That is. What he means there. Is God's faithfulness. And Christ's faithfulness. Grounded in God. Who is love. Operative in us. God's faithfulness. And Christ's faithfulness. Grounded in God. Who is love. Operative in us. That. Is really something and should be taken seriously. God takes us seriously enough to love us without condition or restriction. God took us seriously enough to send His Son. And to hand him over for our offenses. The son took us seriously. And he took our plight seriously. Enough to hand himself over for us. But God loved us so much that he did not spare the one who was to inherit all things. Isaac was an heir. He was the heir of Abraham. And in Isaac, through Isaac, the seed would come. So God spared Isaac through whom the seed would come. But when the seed came, God did not spare the seed because he was the heir that would inherit all things. So when God did not spare his son, but freely handed him over for us all, he will also give us all things because the son whom he handed over is the heir to whom he gives all things. So he didn't spare the heir so that the heir would cause everyone to inherit all things. So God will freely give us all things because he did not spare the heir. The seed, the son. We found that out a little bit in Romans 8:32. How shall he not freely give us all things because he freely handed him over? The reason is found in him being the heir, God who at various times and through various means spoken times past through the prophets has spoken to us in these last days in his son who will inherit all things. The father loves the son gave all things into his hands. Those same all things are given to us because the father gave the son and he handed him over for our fences means contrary to the fluffy universalism of our time that he bore all the wages of sin, which is a punishment, not a retributive justice punishment by which God poured, which God poured out on him, nor was it a turning away of God's wrath from mankind because God wasn't mad at mankind, but it was bearing the wages of sin, which is the result of sin and sins where it would have taken us all, which is to an unspeakable death. He was handed over to that, but He wasn't only handed over as an unwilling substitute. He handed himself over for us all. That's an inconceivable love because he died an unspeakable death. It's an inconceivable. In fact, it's an impossible kind of love to men. It's impossible to mankind. This love is impossible, but all things are possible with God who is love. Now, I'm going to say some things that will be hard to hear tonight. Not hard to hear because they're going to be hard on you, but they'll be hard to understand at first because Paul in his epistles wrote of many things that are hard to understand, said Peter. If an apostle finds him hard to understand, then maybe we'll find him a little hard to understand. But I love things that are hard to understand because only the Spirit will teach us what they mean. Now, God loved us so much that he didn't spare the one who was to inherit all things. So that by not sparing him, we would all receive all things with him in resurrection and in a new creation. You may not take yourself seriously. But God took you very seriously. He was and is and always will be very serious about you. Because he loves you. And he takes you so seriously that he actually gives you the command to love. And me the command to love. Let me explain this. If he didn't take us seriously, he never would give us the command to love. But he knows our frame, and he knows that we are but dust, like the psalmist said. And so, with the command to love, he gives us the gift of himself, God who is love. The gift of his own love in the person of the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts in Romans 5, 5. So Christ died for the ungodly while they were still, let's say they, we, they, parentheses, we. Christ died for the ungodly while we were in a state of absolute impotence to do anything about our condition and our situation under sin and in slavery to the fear of death. Christ died for us right then. Such is the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Inconceivable kind of love. It passes knowing. So you can't even really say you know it. Because it passes knowing. But you can know that which passes knowing only by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 3.19 God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners. That means intractably, unrepentantly, impossible to be repentant. Sinners, intractable sinners. God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet intractably sinners, Christ died, Romans 5.8. And so as we talked about Sunday, and that is out there in print, incidentally, a roughly edited version of what I said that day is this was the most important message I've ever proclaimed. And that'll change because there'll be other ones in the future that'll be the most important, I hope. Otherwise, I'm not growing, am I? There was a union of divine and human wills at the cross. We are saved because of the union of God's will with the human will of the man, Christ Jesus. And not by any decision of our own, therefore, someone I studied while away in Florida almost every day, Martinus C. De Boer, a Dutchman. And it reminds me of my nephew who once told a joke. He said, "There's two things I hate." Prejudice people and the Dutch. But uh, <laughs> Martin he would have hated Martinus, I guess, poor Martinus de Boer. That's B O E R not B O R E. He's anything but boring. He was correct when he spoke of what he called the apocalyptic gospel, which quote has little or nothing to do with the decision of human being that human beings must make but everything to do with the decision God has already made on their behalf. That's Promity, which is identified with God's enactment of salvation in Christ. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again and say it again and again, because it's the gospel. Seriously, we're saved because of Jesus Christ's decision in union with the father's decision in union with the father's will. The most comforting fact in the world is the union of God and a human will. The will of the father in union with the son who said, not my will, but yours be done. A union of wills. And when you put the union of the father's will together with the union of the human will of the man, Christ Jesus, do you know what you have? The love of God in Christ Jesus. And so we're still putting the squeeze on till the very last minute in Romans. We're squeezing from the left and the right. Romans 8.39, I'm persuaded that nothing, there's a whole list there, and we're going to deal with them, principalities and powers, define what they are, who they are, how they're connected with the Elohim of Psalm 82, how God plans to reconcile them to himself, unfallen and fallen, fallen, Fallen angelic creatures and fallen creatures called Elohim. How they stand against us now. And how once again, we're going to learn that this, where we are right now, where it says a brother is born for adversity. We don't have to look down the road and see maybe an adversity will happen. Welcome. You're already in it. Adversity, university. Like the t-shirt, like Mars's t-shirt says. Adversity, university. You're there. And so now is the time we lay down our lives. We don't have to wait for some heroic action. How can I lay down my life my life, for my brother, my sibling, my sister, my fellow human being? How can I do it unless they're running in front of a bus and I push them away and let the bus hit me? It's not a heroic action. It's an everyday action of laying aside the living soul of the Adamic ontology that lives for itself and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ to manifest his graciousness, his forgiveness, his kindness, his patience, his love, his livingness, his life. Otherwise we'll be present to each other, but in the Adamic ontology, the problem with neurotic anxiety is the person who has it is never present to the people around them. They're always not present even though they're there they're only present to themselves and their problems so they can't be present to you And if you're going something God forbid you'd ever say anything about it because it's all about them and their problems you see they're only present to their own problems and they're not present to you as their loved one or as someone you love so and I'm talking there about neurotic anxiety I'm not talking about a an ailment, a psychological ailment that can be treated in various ways. I'm talking about the kind of thing Jesus told us not to do. Don't worry about anything. And Paul said the same thing. But by prayer and supplication, make every one of your needs known to God. That not, doesn't just mean, hey, I need flour to make bread. That means, hey, I need peace because I'm anxious. I need to be present to my family to my loved ones to my wife to my children to my grandchildren to my fellow believers i need to be present to them and represent to them the lord jesus christ instead of just being present to myself in a dynamic ontology that's the decision to lay down your life it's not a heroic action it may come to that it may come to that who knows but it's an action of everyday living. This is the adversity. Don't wait for a big one to come. This is the agona. This is the clash of the ages. This is the clashing juncture of the evil age and the age invaded by God in his Messiah. All we, like sheep, now are led to the slaughter all day long. But the question is, who will separate us Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? In 835, then 836, we're led to the slaughter like sheep. That means, thank God, we are identified with the flock of slaughter from which Jesus was selected. But no, nothing separates us from the love of Christ in that agona. In fact, we are more than conquerors. Only once was this word ever used in the scripture. It's hupernikon. Super victors through him who loved us. Romans 8 37. But I'm anticipating and putting the squeeze on from the left and the right. So, Jesus Christ himself is the saving act of God, of God our Savior, whose will is all people get saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. All people have been saved, but people come to the knowledge of the truth embodied in Jesus one by one, as it were. Not all at once. That's why the Bible says pray for all human beings, especially those in power, those who have authority so that we may live quiet and peaceable lives. This is good in the sight of God our Savior who is willing that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So then, that truth that we come to the knowledge of is the truth that is embodied in Jesus. And it's the truth that their salvation is Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. It's one thing that all people are saved. That will was fulfilled when Jesus said to tell But he said it in the Aramaic. That's a done deal. It was done when Jesus said finished. But it's another thing for people to come to the knowledge of this truth which is embodied in Jesus and comes by a supernatural insight. This reality, which is Jesus as the reconciliation of God and all of humankind and the reconciliation of all things and all beings in the heaven and all things on earth. That's the knowledge of the truth that we come to. This knowledge of the truth is the same as Ephesians 4 13 The knowledge, that's epignosis, of the Son of God. Same thing. Knowledge of the truth, knowledge of the Son of God, which Paul says is arrived upon when all of us, all the human race comes into the unity of the faith and then to the stature of the measure of the maturity of Christ. The salvation of all the human race happened in Jesus Christ. He is the saving act that saved all humankind. Coming to the knowledge of this truth, capital T-R-U-T-H, happens to people one by one, so to speak. Not by your persuasiveness, not by argument, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. We can pray that specific people we know or some that we don't know will come to the knowledge of the truth that is embodied in Jesus. God is very inclined to take seriously that petition. People prayed for me at the University of Vermont. A group of people did in groups that I would never join. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Campus Crusade, two groups I swore I'd never join and never did. In fact, when I did get saved or come to the knowledge of the truth, the person, the believer who lived across the hall said, don't come to our group, go down with those hippies at the bottom of College Street, which was a group of believers that came from Redondo Beach and they had a big house and it said Jesus saves on it. And so that's where I went. Quit college, stupidly, six weeks short of graduation. See, I was a wacko then, but at least I I, I just thought you had to make that radical break that was that radical. So I went in and saw the dean of students and she said, why are you quitting? And I said, God told me to and she Fell through the desk, put six zeros next to all my subjects, and I went and moved into the Christian commute. I should have blamed it on the guy that told me to get onto that house, but now that was stupid, but God forgave me. I guess I went back and finished college later, etc, did a lot of other things since then but Christ, the one who died, according to Romans 6, 7, was justified by God who justifies. Christ, the one who died, according to Romans 6, 7, was also justified by God who justifies. In fact, Romans 3, 26, God is just and the justifier of that one who by his faithfulness, even Jesus. Now, why does God, if God justifies the ungodly, then how can we say he justified Christ? Because Christ died as the ungodly. He became sin, you know. And when Christ was justified, all were justified. If one died for all and all died, then don't tell me that when he was justified, all weren't justified. Because then you'd have to argue with Romans 5.18. Because in Romans 6, 7, the translation says, for the one who died, there it is again, the one who died, Christ, the one who died, Romans eight thirty four, the one who died, Romans 6, 7, Christ, was liberated from sin, it says. That means from sin's claims. So most translations, and I looked at a lot of them today, they have either has been freed from sin, the one who died, has been freed from sin that one who died is Christ dying for all and all died with him so when Christ died and was freed from the claims of sin all died and were freed from the claims of sin but what do you think that word freed means it's a, it's it's kind of a mystery to me because most translation have has been freed from sin or is freed from sin." The complete Jewish Bible has, has this: has been cleared from sin. The James Murdoch translation in 1852, taken from the literal Syriac peshito or the Aramaic says is emancipated from sin." But the Greek text doesn't have emancipation or liberation or freedom it has dicaiao. uh-oh uh-oh that means justified it's kind of used elsewhere in Romans like Romans 2.13 3.4 3.20 3.24 26 and 28 3.30 four two. 5-9, five. Five, five, eight30, twice and 8:33. right where we are.. The idea is that Jesus, who died, was justified in the sense of being liberated from sin's claims on him. He became sin, you know. So at that time, sin had its claim on him, but he died. And sin lost its claims on him, and he was justified. But when Christ died, all died, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14. That was the determination that he made that led him to love people, all people, not some people. When Christ died, all died. So when Christ was liberated from sin's claims in his resurrection... So then all were justified. For Romans 8, well, let's go back to 425. As I get to the end of this study in Romans, I'm all over the place in Romans. 425 says he was delivered up, handed over, paradidomi, for our offenses and raised up for our justification. I've said multiple times, and I'll say it again and again, because it's the gospel. Seriously. Our offenses, Romans 4.25, are the sins of the whole world. So when we say our, we're speaking as part of the whole world. He was handed over for our sins because he was a propitiation, not for our sins only in the local sense, Our sins as Jews in Israel, our sins as Christians, the sins of the whole world, all of humanity and all of its times, which God looked at in one sweeping gaze at once, because as Martin Luther rightly said, he stands astride all time at once, and he sees all the sons of Adam, all the sons of men, all of them, and he sees them in a universal, unanimous hostility against himself. And he doesn't conclude, let's destroy them. He concludes, let's reconcile them to myself. Let's turn my enemies into my friends. And he did it through the blood of Christ. That's the gospel. Seriously. It's a big question people say today. Seriously? If you, God forbid, and I'm using that, say to a teenager, make your bed, you're going to get this answer seriously no I'm not serious never make your bed until mice breed in your bed and you get forced out by the stench go ahead so then seriously that's the gospel seriously yeah seriously Our offenses are the sins of the whole world and our justification is the justification or the rectification of all the human race. I take Romans 5.18 seriously. This has nothing to do with our obedience, not even our obedience of faith, which Paul's gospel intends to bring out in all the nations. You know what it has to do with? It has everything to do with the meritorious obedience of one Jesus Christ, by which many, that's all, are constituted as righteous or set right or justified. By the obedience of one, the many are made righteous, that's justified. And just in case you don't know what many means, it means all. 518 and 519 is virtually Paul saying many equals all. Many is often a metaphorical understatement for everybody. He will justify by my servant's knowledge or his suffering. He will justify many, says Isaiah 53, 11. Paul says that means all. You see, that which was hidden in the prophet's about God's son and the universally saving effect of his cross is only now made manifest. You could read the Old Testament all day long but never see it until you turn to the Lord and then you see Christ in all of it and you see his universally saving significance. That's what Romans 16.25 says. Christ died for the ungodly And in fact, he died as the ungodly. Why have you forsaken me was the moment in which he was dying as the ungodly. Experiencing the lie that the ungodly experience that they are God forsaken. He was made to be sin. And the sin that he was made was unbelief. For God made him to be sin for us. The ungodly. So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. I take that seriously. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And he became a curse for us. In Galatians 3.13, you can't get a four-generation curse out of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 unless you misinterpret that verse as we see, as we saw Sunday. He makes the sins of the father, passes them on to the children... That means he passes them on and passes them on and passes them on until they fall on his son. It's not like, oh, God says, well, you committed a sin. That's going to fall down on your son. No, it's going to be passed over onto your son, but your son will become a father of his son. So it will pass from him as a father to his son. The point is, all the sins that God did not judge, he waited until they were laid on Christ, his son, whom he did not spare. And the same is true for all the generations afterwards. There is no four-generation curse. There is the curse that Christ was made so that the blessing of Abraham, which is the Holy Spirit, would come to all the nations. Galatians 3.13 and 3.14. So then, I just stepped another step out of the camp. But I like this, you see, you can talk about going outside the camp, but I like this. We go outside the camp to him, it says. Outside the camp to him, our Lord Jesus Christ. Outside the camp, you take him seriously. Inside the camp, you mention him with dulcet tones and sing about how much you love him. That's inside the camp. But you don't really take him seriously. Outside the camp, you go to him and you take him seriously. He who knew no sin became sin that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. He became a curse for us by hanging on a tree because the scripture says, Cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. So guess who Jesus Christ became? Every man hanging on that tree. So every man rose together with him in justification. That's the gospel, seriously. When Christ, the one who died, died, all died. Second Corinthians five fourteen. When Christ who died arose from the dead, he rose justified on the basis of his faithfulness unto death. Romans three twenty six. When he died, all died, and when he arose justified, all arose with him, justified. Don't ask me, will God save all mankind? Because my answer is, God has saved all mankind. And so there is a sense where you can look at all mankind as believers, even your Muslim friends. Because Christ's faith is the belief of every man. His faithfulness is the faithfulness of every person, every human being. That's another step. I got to take that when I go to the Bloomhearts brothers father and son, Christoph Blumhardt. They were radical universalists way before it was in vogue to be that. And the more radical the better. I like them. I like the Bloomhearts, B-L-U-M-H-A-R-D-T if you want to Google them. It may never have been said before in human history. Google the Bloomhearts. Maybe nobody ever said that before. Like I said to my sisters in Florida, nobody ever said what I said today. And they said, what did you say today? And I said, I don't want to go back to Walmart because I found a toupee in the broccoli. And then I said, nobody else said that today. It was just that Walmart, just that, not not all Walmarts. It was just that one. And I didn't really do that. I just said that to my sisters. They said, are you going to Walmart? And I said, no, I found a toupee in the broccoli there. So, so it got me out of going to Walmart. But then I, we were saying nobody ever said that, probably ever. So nobody ever said Google the Hearts." Maybe. No, probably somebody did. When he died, all died. When he rose, all arose with him justified. Romans 3, 24. All sinned, all have sinned, being justified. Who's being justified by the grace of God through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus? The same all that sinned. And all sinned when God looked at all the human race in the universal, great universal sinfulness of all mankind. When he died, all died. When he rose, all died. Justified, all arose in him justified. That's Colossians 3.1 compared with Romans 3.24, 5.1 and 5.18. All have been given life-giving justification. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, or in a sense all were made alive. If there was a law that could make an unjust person righteous, and if there was a law to make a dead person alive, then justification and eternal life would be on the basis of a law or the obedience to a law. But no such law exists according to Galatians 3.21. So God did what the law of Moses or no other law addressed to sinful flesh could ever do. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin in the flesh that the eternal word became by incarnation. Romans eight three, but God who justifies—we're dealing still with Romans eight thirty three. This is an exposition of a verse eight thirty three. God who justifies and Christ who died were united in one will. There was a union of wills between God. All three members of the triune God are united in will. One being called God, not called the universe. One being called God, existing in three persons. The three persons of the divine trinity were united in their will to save all mankind. But now there is a union of will between the father and the son and the man Christ Jesus. So there's a union of divine and human will in the salvation of all mankind. So any human decision that has to be made with regard to salvation was made by the man Christ Jesus the mediator between God and all of mankind, whose only His will counts in salvation. You can will all day long and get on every single aisle of every single church in America and across the world. And it won't mean a hill of beans. It's Christ's decision. And so, the F- divine Father and the man Christ Jesus acted in a perfect union of wills the father handed the son over to death for us and the son handed himself over to death to experience the wages not paid by God but the wages paid by sin which is death but the father's command did not end in the son's death for jesus said no one takes my life from me i myself lay it down oh follow this follow this cuz this goes from the gospel seriously to our command to love i have the right to lay it down and i have the right to take it up again i have received this command from my father a twofold command: to lay my life down, and to take my life back again. He did them both. John ten eighteen. The command from his father was to lay his life down. Consequently, he had the right, or the divine authorization, and the power to lay down his life in death. For us and for our salvation, says the creeds, like the Nicene Creed rightly. He obeyed this command of the father to lay his life down. But there was also the command to take up his life again. And Jesus had the command to do that. Consequently, Jesus had the power and the authorization to take his life back up again which he did willingly when God raised him up by his own glory. He was raised by the glory of the Father, says Romans 6, 4. He was raised by the Holy Spirit, says Romans 1, 4, and Romans eight eleven. which means that the Holy Spirit is the glory of the Father. Who is the glory of the Father? The Holy Spirit is the glory of the Father. He raised up Jesus from the dead. Jesus took his life back at the same time in a union of wills laying his life down. He took away our sin. He took away our sin by receiving the wages of sin in himself and by becoming sin, which means to receive the full impact of all the sins of all the world, the wages, this laying down of his life. Wasn't for nothing. which is what you say when you say you're justified by works or even what you say when you say you're justified by your own action of believing. 1 John 3.16 says he laid down his life for us. He didn't lay down his life for nothing. He laid down his life for us, God for us divine promiety revealed at the cross. And you know what John goes on to say, and we're going to have a little binge on John here. First, John, this is how we come to know love to know what love is. He laid down his life for us. This is how we come to know love. What am I doing in this rather free-flowing communique tonight? What am I doing? What am I doing here? I'm proclaiming Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery kept silent for ages, but now made known by the command of the eternal God. I have a command to proclaim Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery. Not according to the traditional gospel, but according to the disclosure of a mystery of his all-saving significance, which was hidden in the writings of the prophets, but is now popping everywhere. All of a sudden, the Old Testament has become a pop-up book. And USSJC pops up everywhere. It didn't before because God withheld the eyes so that they did not see Jesus, not on the road to, the, to Emmaus. God held the eyes of people So they wouldn't see Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures until he said, let me take the veil away. And he did, but he hasn't taken it away from everybody that happens one by one. It happened to me. It happened to you, many of you. So what am I doing? I'm preaching the gospel of God about his son. Seriously? Yeah, seriously. So, we've spoken of the union of wills. This is the last thing I want to move into tonight. We've spoken of the union of wills in love, in the three persons that constitute the one being called God. We have spoken of the union of the divine will and the human will of Christ in love which is called the love of God in Christ Jesus from which we can never be separated. Now we'll speak of the union of our wills with the will of Christ. And that's the Christian way of life. It's not doing what we want to do and calling it for Jesus. It's acting in union with the will of Christ. Richard Bauckham, and I remembered this from I don't know how many years ago I read this, but I see the page, and I knew it was at the end of the, either the end of the last chapter or the end of the second to the last chapter. It was at the end of the second last chapter of his book called The Theology of the Book of Revelation, page 142 and 143. He wrote this, Bauckham. He said, because God's will is the moral truth of our own being as his creature's. We shall find our fulfillment only when, through our free obedience, his will becomes also the spontaneous desire of our hearts. Therefore, in the perfection of God's kingdom, theonomy, which is God's rule, and human autonomy, which is self-determination, will fully coincide. At the consummation of the kingdom, God's will for you will become the spontaneous desire of your heart all the time. Imagine that. It can be part-time now, but not all the time, usually. So we too have a command, and that's to lay down our lives for our siblings. Not just fellow believers or fellow saints, but fellow human beings. We also have a command to take up our lives again, like Jesus did. Only this time, not in Adam, who is the living soul who lives for himself. The first man, Adam, was a living soul, meaning he lives for himself. The second man from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a life-giving spirit. He does not live for himself. He lives to give life. First Corinthians fifteen forty-five. For in losing our life in the Adamic ontology... We find our life in Christ. So, laying down our lives for each other does not have to be what people call an act of heroism. It may come to that. But it's laying aside the old man and putting on Christ to manifest the life of Jesus. Adamic ontology, to be in it, is not to be really present to others. Imagine you wait so long to see somebody that you love and they come and they're on the phone or on this device the whole time. You're talking to them and they're doing this and they're doing this and not really present to you. That's not, they're not loving you. You want them to, that you love them. They're not loving you back. They're not reciprocating your love. They're not even present to you. They're present to something. Maybe they're present to Candy Crush, or whatever the hell that thing is, or War Zone of this, or something. They're not present to you. In the Adamic ontology, we aren't present to those we love. So we have to lay down the Adamic ontology to be present to the people we love, and to manifest the life of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, the love of Christ to one another to be in the Adamic ontology is not to be present to others, even though we may be in their presence in selfish pride. We are only present to ourselves in sinful anxiety and worry. We're only present to ourselves and not there for others. As his representatives as his apostolate in this agona. In Christ we live to God. And we're present to him. And in this way we are present to others as his representatives. As his apostolate. In this agona. In this clash of the ages. We are born as brothers for adversity and the adversity isn't how bombs are blowing up everywhere around us. Welcome to adversity university, which is the necessary tribulation that precedes the consummation of the kingdom of God. Acts fourteen twenty two, John 16, 1 Thessalonians three, three, in fact, in context, let's again, we're going to continue to binge in John, then we'll close. In context and in sequence, consider this. 1 John 3.16, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our siblings. Then jump, jump from 3.16 to 4.8 of John. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. But listen to how it goes now. 4.9. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world. So that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Our sins but let's now loop back. To 1 John 2.1, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one, yea, rather who is risen and makes intercession for us, Romans 8, 34, there's a conjunction there. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Then suddenly fast forward to 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother he is a liar for if the person who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen and we have this command from him the one who loves God must also love his brother now there that stings am I a Pharisee am I laying on this burden on you and not lifting a finger to help here's me lifting a finger to help in fact I'm lifting my massive bicep to help you on this. So take heart when it says to love one another as he loved. I'll say it again. He gives the gift of himself. The gift of his own love in the person of the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts. Because of that. This command to love and to lay down our lives for our siblings is neither grievous nor even difficult to accomplish. 1 John 5, 3. Karl Barth got it right when he wrote his commentary in Romans, and he wrote this in Romans commentary. For the love of God in Christ Jesus is the oneness of the love of God towards men and the love of men towards God. It's all one love. Even you too got it right. You too? One love. And Bonhoeffer again spoke correctly when he said, quote, the love with which man loves God and his neighbor is the love of God and no other. For there is no other love. There is no love which is free and independent from the love of God. In this then, the love of men remains merely passive. Loving God is simply the other aspect of being loved by God. Being loved by God implies loving God. The two do not stand separately, side by side. They're one that's why I said God makes all things work together for the lovers of God who are everybody because you don't love God until God loves you and God loves everybody. So everything works together. God is together in a triune way working all things toward the ultimate good of all people whom he views as the lovers of God because he loves them and you don't love God until he loves you first. So God works all things together for all people at all times and that's his universal divine permeity. And you haven't heard Romans eight twenty eight like that. So you haven't heard it right. That's the gospel. Seriously. So I would close pastorally and say, oh, how this pertains to the saints in Rome. And to the groups sitting in their opposite corners, thinking circumcision is really something or uncircumcision is really something affected by the persuasive and the pervasive belittling hostility that Max Schaler called ressentiment because of their pride of self-righteousness and hyperaphania oh how that pertains to Rome oh how this pertains to us This is all going toward love as it has all come from love, the love of God, the love of God who is love. Recently, I looked up love in an index. I love to do that in a book. I get tired of reading straight, so I'll go, let me see what he says about faith, see what she says about grace, see what he says about love. So I looked up love in the book I'm plowing through now called The Redemption. I waited seven years for it, so I'm plowing through it. Redemption by Lonergan. And I do it because I like to look up something like love and all the relevant passages in the book in the hopes of constructing a doctrine of love. But this is the strangest index. It only had two or three different references to love. But the editor had a note next to the index instead of listing all the passages. And this is what the editor said of The Redemption. I think it was Robert M. Duran. He said, It could be argued that the overriding theme of this work is love. To do justice to the category love would entail referencing most pages. Thus, under the entry love, only limited subcategories appear. So the whole book is about love. And you know what I decided right then or saw? We can say the same thing about Romans, the epistle. And we'll be ending our brief treatment of this glorious letter with Romans 8, 38 to 39. Look at it and we'll close. I have been persuaded And this is where me and Paul think alike. I've come to the same persuasion in Romans 14, 14. I have been persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He said, you said, are you a universalist? I say, yes, I am. Seriously. You say who persuaded you? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. I have been persuaded. The passive voice here indicates that his cognitive invincibility has been evoked in him. By the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as in Romans 14, 14, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things in the present, nor things about to be, nor powers above, nor powers below, nor any other created thing, will ever have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And we thank you, Father that this is the name of this epistle. This is where it came from. This is where it's going. It's love. And we thank you for it. And thank you that we have been persuaded. Many of us can say, along with Paul, that during the course of this teaching, even though a pastor has spoke these messages, the Lord Jesus Christ himself has persuaded us of things that we never imagined. And our heart breaks for those who broke off from this fellowship Years before these things were revealed. And so we pray for their return, not to this church, but to this truth.